This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our good friends at Musicbed, licensing relevant music. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, editor-in-chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, managing editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, producer at No Film School. It's July 21st, 2016. On this week's show, we will talk about Emmy nominations for indies, the creation of the world's biggest theater chain, Black Magic's forward-thinking Arduino Shield, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. <laughs> Coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York. We're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. Our shows have been pretty heavy this summer, as has the national and international news, but we've got some fun, fun stuff this week. For starters, I saw Ghostbusters. I had to go opening weekend, and my friend's 13-year-old nephew was in town, which was my excuse, but I so would have gone anyway. And we saw it in Times Square, which was pretty awesome, since the whole thing takes place in Times Square in the center of New York City. I didn't just go for the haters, but going to help squash the haters was definitely part of my motivation. And I got to say, even though I might have gone for slightly political reasons, it was hilarious. I loved the movie. And uh, all I have to say is hashtag love for Leslie J. Did you guys see anything good since the last show? Nope. (laughs) I saw Life Animated last night. Um, It's a documentary that has been out in theaters for about two weeks, and um, it's about a boy who's diagnosed with autism and becomes selectively mute and he can, he can only learn to communicate through the language, the emotional language of Disney films. It's incredible. There's just like if you've ever seen um, Kurt Cobain's montage of Heck, the animator gets inside the head of, of the subject by doing these animated interludes. And it's, it's a really touching film and it's actually very funny too, surprisingly. And I would recommend it to all of you. I want to see it. Speaking of uh, top-notch entertainment, we can get into our headlines because the 2016 Emmy nominees were announced this past week. And of course, we want to congratulate our indie brothers and sisters who were nominated. There's not much indie fare nominated in narrative categories, but um, there are plenty of documentaries on the list which come from the indie world. Uh, In most of the categories, docs get lumped with other nonfiction and factual programming. So like a documentary would be up against, you know, Anthony Bourdain's show or whatever. Um, So it's especially exciting when they get nominated. Um, This year, there's a lot of indie directors on the list for outstanding directing for a nonfiction program, like Matthew Heineman of Cartel Land, Davis Guggenheim for He Named Me Malala, Liz Garbus for What Happened to Miss Simone. Laura Riccardi and Maura Demos for Making a Murderer, which, by the way, Netflix announced that Making a Murderer will get new episodes uh, added to their lineup. Each of these films is nominated in at least one other category, um, including Outstanding Cinematography for a Nonfiction Program. And there's another category just for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking, which Cartel Land is also nominated in, as well as uh, The Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution. I have to say that the f- that the cinematography in Cartel Land was absolutely incredible. It looked like it was shot. Well, it was shot basically like a narrative film. Yeah, we we have uh, an interview about it on the site too about the cinematography in that movie. So I'll dig up the link. Yeah, the couple others in that category are Jim the James Foley story, not Jim John Jim the John Fusco story. 
That's yet to be released. Uh, and Racing Extinction and uh, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, which was a Netflix release from earlier this year. Also very good. Uh, I also want to congratulate my friend and indie filmmaker Jill Soloway. Woohoo! She got a whole ton of nominations for her show Transparent, including one for her in the Outstanding Directing in a Comedy Series category. On that note, there was an interesting analysis done by Mary McNamara in the LA Times that favorably compared the Emmy nominees to the Oscar nominees in terms of the race and gender disparities that we've talked about a lot on this show. She was talking about the nomination of shows like Blackish, uh, and she mentioned that series anchored by the once rare strong female lead and her experience filled virtually every list, creating a long and refresh- refreshingly varied arc that stretched from transparent woohoo, to the increasingly female centric Game of Thrones. By the way, Game of Thrones received the most nominations, uh, 23, including three in the supporting actress category. We also have a post on the site about which cameras and lenses were used by the best cinematography nominees for the Emmys. Hint, Alexa and Red. Is that it? Were those the two? The guy who wrote the post talked about how this big surprise is what was missing from the list, which was basically any Sony camera. Oh, I see. But you'll have to read it to find out more. So what else is going on in the news, Emily? In big money news, AMC dropped $1.2 billion to acquire 242 theaters owned by the British exhibitor Odeon and UCI Cinema Group. The implications of this deal for global film are really significant when you consider the fact that AMC's parent company is none other than China's largest cinema operator, Wanda Cinema Line. And of course, now we know who the real megalomaniac is in the room. Wanda? Wanda, yep. She's a beast. (laughs) AMC CEO Adam Aaron called this an opportunistic transaction, which is a pretty apt description given the fact that it happened in the wake of the pound's sharp decline post-Brexit. The deal has basically created a monopoly theater chain owned by a Chinese company. It doesn't really matter that AMC is the U.S. proxy because the parent company is a Chinese company. And as we all know, China's box office is rapidly expanding. It grew nearly 50% last year, and by 2017, it will be the biggest film market in the world. And yes, that means it will be bigger than Hollywood. So I read that this like deal makes it the largest theater chain in the whole world. Yeah, it's basically a a monopoly. You know, the thing that freaks me out about that is because AMC is owned by a Chinese company and China has such a like strict content policies and a history of censorship. it, It makes me afraid that Chinese oversight might affect which films are being shown theatrically all around the globe. It kind of feels like the Darth Vader of movie chains. Does that mean that U.S. filmmakers should consider moving to China to do their movies in the near future? I wouldn't go that far because so much of AMC is, well, AMC is a U.S.-based company and so much of the operations happen in the U.S. And in fact, they were the recorded parent company on this deal. I would say no, because as I was just pointing to, China has such heavy restrictions on what can be made there and they would have to censor anything that gets shot on Chinese soil. So unless you're doing like a completely non-offensive in every way kind of action flick or something. I think China's not really a great place for for you to be making films. Well, yeah, I guess then that I would amend that question to like not be uh, strictly limited to independent filmmaking because if the Chinese market is going to continue doubling for the next however many years, won't there be more jobs for filmmakers? 
Chinese are seeing lots and lots of movies. They're not necessarily seeing lots and lots of movies that are made in China. Ah, gotcha. Interesting question, though. I mean, this box office phenomenon in China will definitely shift the way business is done across the board and sort of remains to be seen how it'll trickle down. China. And it's it's in keeping with the the monopolization of a lot of entertainment companies like Netflix and Amazon on streaming. I think that that's probably the direction that we're headed in. Consolidation and monopoly is never good for indie filmmakers. No, that's for sure. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of things big corporations are doing that are not good for indie filmmakers, I was sort of surprised to read on the same day that we learned about this AMC acquisition of Odeon that AMC Networks, the television arm, also basically joined Discovery and 21st Century Fox as the third company this year to offer buyouts to a large chunk of their employees. So in AMC's case, it's about 200 employees or around 6% of their workforce. Variety reported that AMC stock price is down 14% in the last three months. So it's kind of surprising that they would make this big investment right now on the theatrical side, especially since movie going has taken a general hit like it's up in China but it's down globally maybe that's because the way that TV is going or the way that I don't know channels like AMC um, are producing content the shows that they make are sort of more designed and geared towards streaming services now like how many people watched Breaking Bad on Netflix for the first time or uh, I'm sure once Preacher hits Netflix I've been, I've been waiting for Pre- Preacher to hit Netflix so I can start it you know I'm not going to be watching it on basic cable I'm going to be waiting until I can binge it 10 episodes in a row right so how do you think that have, would affect like networks laying people well, I th- off I think that you know like broadcasting wise if they focus more like centrally on producing content for streaming services or at least focus more on that aspect of the business, there's going to be other parts of the business that are going to become obsolete or they're going to put less focus on. So it's like, I mean, you could compare it to sort of Mashable. The website is now moving into creating streamable content so they just like laid off a whole bunch of website people you know like journalists and whatever so they can focus more on producing content for streaming services rather than journalism they did lay off a bunch of video people too (laughs) i mean that's that's really then the most like apt comparison you could make because it's like you know there's video people working at amc that will be more attuned to creating broadcast television right just like there are there were people at mashable who were geared at creating content for the internet, like for Mashable sort of short form content rather than like long form content. Yeah. I mean, as always on this show, we try to look at how these news items affect indie filmmakers and the indie world. And in this case, I think everything you're saying about the shifting industry will affect all of us who are making content for a living, but especially in the TV world, in these media hub cities like New York and L.A., so many of us actually make our living working in TV that um, these layoffs definitely have a ripple effect uh, among indie filmmakers. Speaking of making a living, nobody knows that anxiety more than aspiring actors who, for the past decade, have been targeted by a group of people that have been capitalizing on this anxiety. These people run casting workshops, which are basically expensive studio classes that promise auditions or exposure to casting directors. 
They've become a nearly ubiquitous presence in Hollywood. New actors will actually spend thousands of dollars each year on these workshops in the hopes of getting their big break. And an expert on the topic named Dea Vise told The Hollywood Reporter that half of the people that are on network television actually paid for their job interviews. So it's a pay-to-play system that has only become more exploitative as casting directors actually adopt these workshops into their workflow and integrate them into the discovery process of finding talent. These workshops are legal, theoretically, but the law stipulates that they can't offer auditions or employment in exchange for their paid services, which is exactly what they do. The L.A. Attorney's Office has launched an official investigation to find out whether these workshops violate something called the Krakorian Talent Scam Prevention Act from 2009. Spoiler alert, they do. Mm. This week, SAG-AFTRA actually joined the conversation by publicly denouncing these workshops and citing their violation of California labor law. Interestingly enough, when I was a kid, a very young kid, uh, I think I was five, I wanted to be an actress, like many young girls. (laughs) So in our neighborhood, there was this casting workshop called John Robert Powers. Where is this? What neighborhood? Um, It was in Marin County. Like where in Marin? Green Bay. Really? Yeah, where John grew up, actually. Yeah, interesting. You probably drove by it every day and never knew because it was so so. sleek. (laughs) (laughs) From what I can remember, they really did package them as pay to be seen by casting directors. And even when I was a kid, I was aware of how sleazy the whole situation was and I quickly wanted to drop out but I think it did give me a little bit of confidence that I needed I can talk a lot about this um, because it's one of the reasons why I left the game um, in the first place yeah because they're huge in New York City too it's not just LA they're bi-coastal so that's really the catch-22 about being an actor and that's what we talked about last week was it actors have sort of the hardest time out of any of the people that are on a film set because Michael Shannon was speaking out about actors Mm -hmm. getting underpaid on indie movies right exactly and so not only are they underpaid on indie movies A lot of them, I mean, like myself included at one time, I never actually paid for any classes because I wasn't like falling for that shit. But I know like in acting school. Yeah. I mean, I went to I I mean, I went to acting school, but I it's still it's not for I mean, for some people, it's for, I guess, the experience of learning. But most of most of the classes that they offer are like based on how to audition. They prepare you with sides to be seen by a casting agent. Those workshops cost like something like two hundred dollars. 50 bucks to $300 for like a two to three week class, which is essentially amounts to nothing more as, as far as like the actual workload goes. You're not really learning much, but you pay for the opportunity to be seen. And people like really, really buy into that. People are taking different classes one after the other. You know, they're not stopping because they're just so ambitious and they really want a chance to be seen. And that adds up to like a thousand bucks over the course of like three courses. It's crazy. One of the shorts that I saw at Rooftop Films program of New York City shorts last week was actually about one of these workshops in New York that's for people aspiring to be on reality TV. So there's lots of people out there trying to, you know, scam folks that that want a real opportunity. But I guess my question is, have either of you come across any resources for actors or, I guess, aspiring reality TV people that want to take classes that are legitimate or are all of these workshops scams? Well, I mean, I don't think any of them can be like labeled as scams because that's really just the way the industry is. If you think about it in the sense they are providing what they are saying they'll provide, which is a chance to be seen. They're just but by whom is the question like what quality of 
casting directors are, are you getting put well in front yeah of? it depends but you sign up for the classes based off of who is going to see you so like like ellen lewis you know like she's a big casting director so she'll have a course will be designed around a curriculum that will prepare you for an ellen lewis uh audition or some one-on-one time with ellen lewis which is the promise of the end of the class do you think she ever actually casts people I mean, yeah, I think I think so. But again, it's still just pretty much random luck. Who's to say that paying $300 for the opportunity to be seen by Ellen Lewis in that setting is any different than getting an opportunity to audition for her in another setting? You know, it's just... Just through your agent? Yeah, just through an agent or even like an open casting call because there are open casting calls. You don't necessarily need to do this to be seen by her. Some places actually offer like travel packages, which are even more expensive. So you have like this bridge program, which takes you from New York to L.A. to be seen by different agents. And those cost like thousands of dollars. It's it's a lot of money. I, I haven't really even thought about this since I was uh, experimenting with it. But people of all kinds come in. It's not just student actors or it's like 45 year old pharmacists that want a chance at acting you know it's this is an interesting conversation because i guess when i first read this headline and heard you talk about it emily i thought whoa scam scam big time scam but then you know getting the chance to be in front of like an alan lewis feels like something potentially legitimately worth paying for what would really be is like in my view would be a scam as if it's like these jokers like don't actually have any contact with real casting directors. Well, I think that's the case for some of them. Like the one that the one that I went to as a kid, John Robert Powers. That's like the most nowadays people see that if you Google John Robert Powers, it's like scam, scam, scam everywhere. It's a very vague, ambiguous promise that they make. I'm sure that the range of legitimacy runs like very wide, you know, yes. for these for this industry. So folks, we don't have a specific resource for you right now, but I guess in general it's like if you're interested in any of these workshops, just try to vet them, look online, see what you can find out if they seem uh, fairly legit or not. We want to give a special thanks to Musicbed for sponsoring this week's podcast. Ever since Musicbed entered the industry, they've been changing the music licensing game for us filmmakers. There's no more sifting through endless production catalogs or settling for a song that, like, just kind of works. They've signed with more than 600 of the world's best indie artists and composers. That means incredible music for your projects with friendly staff and an easy-to-search catalog to help you find it. This catalog represents artists in so many different genres, from indie veterans like Need to Breathe, Kai Kai, Ben Rector, Parade of Lights... And my pals in one of my favorite bands, Paper Moons. It also includes classic artists like Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis. So head on over to musicbed.com to explore their catalog, read up on a blog, see their latest film, or just chat with a music expert. Right now, this is the best part, they're offering 20% off a single license just for Indie Film Weekly listeners. You can get the discount by entering the promo code SCHOOLSOUT when you check out. That's S-C-H-O-O-L-S-O-U-T when you check out. There's no better time to find the perfect soundtrack for your latest project. And now switching gears into some gear news. Literally, Blackmagic Design has released their 3G SDI Arduino Shield. While initially targeted at the broadcast market, it's got a pretty cheap price point at $95, so it works out for DIY filmmakers. Okay, so I'll jump in to say... A little bit about this because um, I'm friends with a lot of computer nerds and have worked in this field a little bit. That basically the Arduinos are like these little computers 
um, that let DIYers kind of program anything. So people have used Arduinos to like make a musical banana and things like that. Like you, like anything you can dream up, you can basically do with an Arduino. So Black Magic has jumped in, and I'm not going to explain this perfectly well, but Black Magic has jumped in and created this Arduino Shield that basically lets you create a remote control for your lens using this kind of like backend protocol. So basically the idea is that ultimately using this combined with Blackmagic's compatible cameras, and hopefully others are going to be adopting this soon, you can like basically create a DIY remote lens control that like lets you wirelessly, you know, control your focus and iris and zoom because you've got this little computer board that you've programmed in between your controller and your lens. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes makes more sense than I could have made of it. It's worth checking out on our site because there's some diagrams and a video that explain more about how this works. In much less of a technical sort of vein, Aperture has developed an incredibly small LED. Um, It's actually their smallest light that they've made yet. It's called the Amaron M9, and it's basically the size of a credit card. It's less than half an inch thick, and it affords you 90 minutes of use with every battery charge. It's daylight balanced, and it only costs 45 bucks. It can make things really easy for you to shoot practical light with. You can mount it just about anywhere using the M9 wall mount. So that means you can put it inside a fridge, on a dashboard, or on a computer to sort of replicate any of those glows that you would have gotten. And you can use it in a myriad of creative ways, I'm sure. Put your mind to it, people. Just do it. I want to test that thing out. It seems fun. Yeah, it'd be great for sort of like science fiction purposes too. Like if you wanted to have like beams of light radiating from your belly button or your kneecaps or maybe, you know. Your nostrils. Your nostrils or maybe any part of your body, you know, like any joint. Terrifying. Imagine, there you go. There's a challenge for all you filmmakers out there. Uh, The next piece of news is about Video Devices Pixie series, which if you're not familiar are these camera mountable recording monitors that were introduced last year to much appreciation from the filmmaking community. This week, Video Devices officially released a new firmware update, version 3.01, which adds the H.264 codec to its arsenal, but it also gives users the ability to simultaneously record 4K ProRes files and these new H.264 MP4 files at the same time, which simultaneously means... Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's um, actually so awesome because it saves you so much time later exporting your footage as you know an MP4 for the web. This is pretty obvious for a lot of you guys who have to handle files every day, but H.264 allows for faster uploads. They're great for web streaming, and they're just much smaller in general, so they can be used for proxy files before you start mastering with 4K. On to grant deadlines. The IDA Pear Lawrence Doc Fund has a deadline of August 1st. The fund is from the International Documentary Association, and it provides production grants totaling $195,000 to be used in the creation of original, independent, feature-length documentary films that illuminate pressing issues in the United States. Twelve projects will be granted these grants. A personal favorite of mine, my hometown San Francisco Film Society, is doing their KRF Filmmaking Grant on August 9th. And it's for narrative filmmakers, which is a rarity. Very rarely do narrative projects get grants all to themselves. It supports feature narrative films that through plot, character, theme, or setting explore human and civil rights, anti-discrimination, 
gender and sexual identity and other social issues of our time. The grant supports projects that benefit and uplift the Bay Area filmmaking community. It's open to international filmmakers, but the films have to fulfill the qualifications outlined on their site for giving back to the Bay Area. Yeah, nice thing about that grant is that you also, um, if you win it, get a bunch of the services that um, the Film Society gives to their filmmaker members. So it's a really great prize all around. They've got some great post-production facilities and lots of different things going on there. We also wanted to mention that the Streamy Awards deadline is extended to tomorrow. That's July 22nd. Um, These awards recognize the best in online video within 44 categories, including three new ones this year. Uh, virtual reality and 360-degree video, live video, and probably most relevant to you all, feature-length films that premiered online in the past year. Uh, the submission fee is a flat 95 bucks, no matter how many categories you enter. Ooh, that's which, steep. It's kind of steep, but there's also a fan nomination process, which goes through the same link that's free if you can get your fans to submit on your behalf. Do you have to have a certain threshold of fans to meet, or can just one fan submit? I think basically anybody can submit anything. So, so who would ever pay that submission fee? <laughs> People who don't have fans. The difference between the Streamies and the Webbies, just FYI, is that the Webbies support or award you know great projects all over the web of all types, and the Streamies are just for video. Um, I see. Anyway, both your submissions and your fan nominations can be made on their site until midnight on the 22nd. And in addition to grants, we got some festival deadlines as well. The Kukaloris Film Festival has a deadline on July 22nd. Also tomorrow. Yep. And it takes place November 9th through the 13th in downtown Wilmington, North Carolina. It's a non-competitive festival, which is kind of nice. It means it kind of just, you know, fosters the artistic community. And the festival programs focus on dance, music videos, emerging artists, social justice, works in progress, and international cinema. It was voted one of the coolest film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine in 2013, and they had some really nice things to say about it, proclaiming it bold, insightful programming, a laid-back rock and roll atmosphere, and gorgeous seaside locale, no doubt contributing to the summer camp for filmmakers vibe, making Kukiloris the best-kept secret on the Indie Fest circuit. A secret no longer. Thanks to you, John. You're welcome. And I will never forget that word. So It's probably, I might not be saying it right, so don't forget it. I already forgot it. Kukaloris. <laughs> Kukaloris. Kukaloris. Just think about the kookaburra sitting in the old gum tree. <laughs> you guys are driving me cuckoo. <laughs> what other festivals do we have? <laughs> the Out on Film Festival deadline is July 29th. It's Atlanta's LGBT festival one of the leading film festivals for LGBT filmmakers in the United States. It takes place September 29th to October 6th this year, 22 years in the running. It showcases a massive number of films, about 100 narratives, documentaries, and short films. And there are awards and prizes for this guy. And now for our beloved Ask No Film School segment. This week, we've chosen a question from Kajun Chang, who asks, how likely is it to cast a famous actor in your first feature film? Um, He's already made some shorts and he's on to his feature. And he specifically mentioned he wants Anna Kendrick. He knows what he wants. Yeah, I respect that. Yeah. So if any of y'all out there have a connection to Anna Kendrick, uh, hook us up. In the meantime, I thought that the board respondents had some really good suggestions for this question. One person said, um, you can find up and coming talent at schools that have a high track record for producing stars. So in other words, sort of catching someone while they're on the rising wave before they have a big name. 
on one of our frequent posters on the No Film School boards, Michael Tyman suggested one you might not think of, the University of North Carolina School for the Arts, where Jeff Nichols and Jada Pinkett Smith went. And I have to say, that is where I cast my star for my thesis film in college. Yeah, there's a lot. That's a really well-respected school, actually, for, for theater. Well, it's one that I might not have thought of. <laughs> um, a couple other people mentioned that you, you might want to look into well-known actors that are aging or retired who might be willing to kind of pop back into the game for the right script. Um, the thing is that your chance of, of reaching an actor directly are slim, but if you Google hard enough, um, their agent's info is usually out there, uh, and um, you can often connect to actors through their agents. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to keep getting on my soapbox about this every single week, it seems, but, you know, why why, why get an established actor when you, you really might not need one for your first film? Um a, you got to take into account the type of budget constraints that you're going to have with your film. I, I'm not, you know, I don't know your scenario. You might have a pretty nice setup going for you, which is awesome. But give a new actor a chance. Why not? You know, I mean, it, I really agree with people who say a way for you to be on the cusp and a way for your movies to be fresh and interesting are to get unknown talent. Um, and if you have a breakout star, that brings different a different kind of media attention to your to your film, right? Which is, you know, another I mean, angle. I can speak to this pretty directly. Again, I was at NYU. I was in a theater film collective with some guy named Alden Ehrenreich, who is now some guy. Yeah, and he's now uh, playing some other guy named Han Solo. So, from your experience, John and Emily, if if someone like Kajun was going to these schools and looking for a breakout talent, what would you recommend he kind of looks for? What what qualities like indicate that someone might have it? I mean, you know, you're 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 the director. Um if you see something you like, reach out to that person and then bring them in for a read. Um see if they have the sort of qualities that you think will enhance your script. Um but I mean Ultimately, you want to be looking for truthfulness in an actor. The one caveat to working with younger actors or less experienced actors is that a lot of the times they can they can do certain elements of their role very well, but don't have the established range that a more experienced actor might have. So when you are auditioning younger actors, be sure to go through the entire range of emotions that they're going to be experiencing on camera. So there are no surprises on screen. Yeah, and also I would suggest putting a camera in the room when you audition them because you know if you're looking at theater schools a lot of these actors aren't necessarily going to have on camera experience and acting for the camera is way different than acting on stage so to be able to see how they come off on camera and how comfortable they are on screen i think that will actually really benefit you in your choice in the long run great tips you guys and good luck kajan let us know how it goes we look forward to seeing the next Anna Kendrick in your film. We've got some indie releases this week. First up in VOD, uh, Childhood of a Leader. That's actually also opening theatrically in New York and L.A. this this Friday. Actor Brady Corbett's directorial debut enters the life of a future dictator. He's an unruly and willful child, and though he does display a penchant for causing distress in the adults around him, nothing in his childhood suggests the Hitler-like monster he'll become. The film is an exercise in minimalism. Though it's high in style, it's low on story, 
which means that every moment is imbued with sinister subtext. I spoke with Corbett about the philosophy of Childhood of a Leader. Basically, the idea was to make a film which was totally allegorical. When you leave a film a little bit shaggy and kind of, it gives it life. And I, I think that what, what's kind of, you, you start playing this kind of really wonderful game with an audience where it's like, sometimes something, something might happen and then it's really satisfying. And then other times we might be waiting for something to happen but but nothing happens. But maybe there's some a moment, or there's something beautiful that's just worth kind of kind of like looking at. And I and I think that I was always thinking about how well we can always talk about the banality of evil. But I also think that we that there's an interesting conversation to be had about the evil of banality. Corbett worked with British cinematographer Lowell Crowley to evoke the essence of Kubrick films, especially Barry Lyndon. The film's cinematography is exquisite. In the final scene, director and DP execute one of the most innovative shots of a crowd I've ever seen. Corbett again on how he pulled it off. I, my cinematographer Lowell, you know, is extremely uh, intuitive, and and he is like very rock and roll in a way. So he's like his operating is extremely formal and super precise. But he also, you know, when we were talking about the last shot. I was like, I was like, oh, I think we're going to have to bring in like five or six operators to do this, and they're going to have to pass pass the the camera through the crowd because I was like, you know, with insurance and whatever, I'm not sure that we can just hand the camera to the crowd. And he was like, fuck that, we're going to build it, we're going to build a cage. He was like, he was like, we'll build, like, we'll build it, we'll, we'll we'll build like a lightweight sort of aluminum cage around the camera, and then he was like, and then we'll just pass it through the audience. And he's like, he said, you know, we have a thousand extras or whatever, so let's let's just give it to them. And I and he was the only person in all of my meetings that had said that, so I said, okay, yeah, let's do it that way. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant this week is a movie we talked about some time ago, I think, Z for Zachariah. Uh, it was a pretty well-received independent film from last year. It's Craig Zobel's dystopian sci-fi, and it stars Chiwetela Ejiofor, Chris Pine, and Emily in my favorite, Margot, Margot Rob- Robbie. I always say Ruby. Oh, no, 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 no. You're just thinking <laughs> about it too hard. Yeah, I know. I get nervous even thinking about it. The movie takes place in the wake of a disaster that wipes out most of civilization. So two men and a young woman find themselves in an emotionally charged love triangle as the last known survivors. I think two of them are living together, and then one comes from out of the woods, and he's sort of nefarious, but Margot Robbie likes him. Oh, okay. And, and then it's a love triangle. Story of my life. <laughs> 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 various love triangles. <laughs> I don't know what's gotten into me today, you guys. It's really hot. The Norwegian disaster film The Wave hits Netflix shores today. It's based on true events about a tsunami that devastated a small town in Norway. Its, it's residents have basically next to no warning. All they see is this looming, terrifying wave on the horizon. And they have, you know, maybe... 10 minutes to get to higher ground before they're all decimated. So high on <laughs> decimated. <laughs> Shit. Sorry, that was very dramatic. <laughs> it's a dramatic film. Yeah, it is. I spoke to director Roar Uthog earlier this year about how he shot his film outside of Hollywood on a $5 million budget with only 5% CGI, which considering the fact that it features a giant wave is pretty impressive. Here's Uthog on how he shot a particularly complicated scene. We wanted the wave to come at night, um, but we had no chance uh, 
to light that whole fjord in the background. Uh, but we wanted the, it to, <clears throat> we didn't want to shoot day for night, so, cause we wanted the headlights of the cars to kind of light the scenes of the actors. Uh, but still being able to see the fjord, uh, in the background. So that gave us a window about three hours to shoot. So we had to rehearse in the afternoon, uh, while the sun was still up and put all, uh, put all the cars in place and we kind of rehearsed each, uh, setup. Uh, then we had to move everything away because tourist buses were coming through on that road. And then as soon as the light was ready, we just ran with the cameras and just tried to capture as much as we could in that before it got too dark. Thanks, Utthog. And this week, theatrically, you can finally catch Mike Birbiglia's second feature, Don't Think Twice. The movie has been making its rounds on the festival circuit this entire year, and it's been getting a lot of great response. I saw it at Tribeca, Micah Van Hove, who is another one of our esteemed reporters or my esteemed colleagues, saw it at South by Southwest and actually had the opportunity to interview both Berbiglia and producer Ira Glass. Both of whom got their starts at This American Life. Micah actually liked the movie so much, he said it was his favorite thing he saw at South by Southwest. And maybe even, I think, at Sundance and any festival, he said it was like one of his favorite movies ever. Right, Micah? Right. The movie, which is written, directed, and acted in by Berbiglia, is about the improv comedy scene in New York City, and it's a totally accurate depiction. Um, It's sort of about how all of the improv clubs around the city are dying out in favor of, well, in reality, it's UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade, which has almost become a school at this point. And the reason why people do improv in the first place is it for artistic means or is it just to get famous and get onto like shows like saturday night live the movie stars jillian jacobs keegan michael key and actual ucb staple chris gethard by the way back to our ask no film school question hearing about this movie again reminds me that if you're doing a comedy um improv troops like ucb um, might be a good place to find up-and-coming talent totally Another film that's being released theatrically uh, in a limited capacity this week is Train to Busan. It's out of South Korea. It's a non-traditional zombie movie by director Sang Ho Yeon. Another one of our writers, Dylan Dempsey, saw the movie at Cannes and thought it was a real hidden gem. He said that the typically aloof Cannes audience was laughing and cheering during the screening. And he actually interviewed the director, who was a well-known animator, about how he broke into live action for this film. So check out that post on the site. I also wanted to do a quick mention, um, speaking of films that we covered at Cannes, Asaf Polanski's One Week in a Day just won Best Israeli Film last week at the Jerusalem Film Festival. And Emily here did an interview uh, that we have on No Film School with that director at, during Cannes. If you're into dark comedy, this is definitely one you got to check out. I love dark comedy. Well, thank you all so much for joining us again for a somewhat silly version of Indie Film Weekly. Um, as always, you can find all the links that we discussed uh, on the show to our articles and to the upcoming deadlines and films on the post associated with this podcast at nofilmschool.com. 
And you can find me on Twitter at LizFilm. You can find me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. That's Jim John Jim. Jim 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 And Emily. You can find Emily. When I speak about myself in the third person, I say things like, you can find Emily on Twitter at E.L. Booter. So go find her. Go She's find there. Her. She might be there. She you can there. find all of us on Twitter at No Film School. And we look forward to talking with you again next week. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>